Into the wild I'll go and into the wild I am It's been a while, freedom child Since I left my roots back home Into the wild I'll go Into the wild I am It's been a while, freedom child Since I left my roots back home Welcome to the Free Birth Society podcast. This is a radical space for women who are ready to celebrate their autonomous choices in birth, motherhood, and beyond. Together, we'll learn about wild birth through personal narrative, we'll explore the politics of birth, and we'll analyze everything that relates to our lives as women from a feminist perspective. Here's your host, Emily Saldea. It's been a wild freedom On the show today, I have Simone from Australia sharing her heart-wrenching story of losing her two-year-old daughter 12 days before free-birthing her second daughter. Simone tells us of the gutting journey of going through her wild pregnancy while navigating the allopathic system for Evie trying to maintain autonomy and dignity in her family amongst providers who were left astounded by her daughter's quickly diminishing condition. She vulnerably shares of her daughter's death, the redemptive birth of Freya, and everything in between. This is one of those impossible stories, and yet Simone is not alone bereaved mothers are all around us. And this is a deeply touching story that softens our hearts and reminds us of the enormous heartache, complexities, and courage of motherhood. May this story medicine today honor the sweet life of little Evie. And may all mothers who have lost their children feel our warm hug and solidarity within this episode. Hi, Simone. Welcome. Thank you. <sighs> um, I want to first thank you for being willing to wake up so early because you are in Australia and it is very early there. And I've got my tea, you've got your coffee. Mm-hmm. It's freezing over here. I'm very, very cold. So I'm going to try to hide my shivering. <laughs> so you've got a big story and it is quite heartbreaking and mm. it is is ethically victorious and you just have really a big story to tell so take your time and start from wherever you want and I'm here to listen okay great I am um, I, I just I really want to start with my grandmother and honor, honoring my grandmother she had really severe HG when she Um, was pregnant with all four of her children and during one of those pregnancies she was prescribed thalidomide and it's sort of part of our family mythology that she brought it home and she looked at it and she threw it in the bin and so it's sort of been part of you know my life that you can't always trust the medical industry and of the year (laughs) 
Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I went to hospital a lot as a child for asthma. And mm -hmm. so I feel like I peeked behind the curtain as well. And I was not, it didn't fill me with trust either. So there's that as well. Um, my mother's birth having me was so painful it was a she went into labor naturally but she basically had every intervention that you can imagine over a 24-hour labor ending ending in an emergency c-section and uh it was so painful for her and at the age of 19 I said to her can you just never tell me the story again because I just I can't hear it ever again because it was she, she told it was such anger and it was so awful. So that's kind of the background of my relationship with, you know, the medical industry and with birth. And it took me a long time to find someone who I wanted to have children with. I guess you could say I had an extended adolescence. Um. <laughs> Love that. Yeah. <laughs> so I was... 36 when I met Harry and um, was pregnant within six months. <laughs> Did you just and, know it was him right away though? Oh yeah, we had a very strong energetic connection, like this really undeniable um, deep knowing when we met each other. So the birth, the, the pregnancy was just like full of joy, you mm. know, even though he was, you know, young and, and wasn't really planning on starting a family, he just gave me a hug when I told him I was pregnant. You know, it was Wait, just, how much younger is he? Oh, he's he's like four years younger than me. Oh, okay. Yeah, but like when you're in your thirties, it's a big yeah. deal. You know? Like um we were happy and we were joyful and everyone was happy for me, you know. My family had been waiting forever for me to start a family. So just wonderful. And uh my mother, my sister, and my closest maternal cousin had all had emergency cesareans. And I knew I didn't want one. And my first initial thought in complete ignorance of anything to do with birth was, okay, well, I'll go to a birth center where there's no men. And maybe that will help me not have a cesarean right that was my it's a thought. start yeah yeah that was my first initial little thought so I went into work and I told a colleague my plan and she said oh Simone look have you thought about home birth and I went no and she said look just I've attended so many home births of my friends it's so oh. beautiful it's a real beautiful bonding experience between the mother and the family. And it just, it, it begins life as a family in a really beautiful, calm way. And she said, just do your research, you know, just do your research. And I'm like, okay, cool. That day, within an hour <laughs> of just getting on Google, I was like, I'm having a home birth. This is what I'm doing. <laughs> you know, um, it did not take long at all. Um, I really love that because a lot of women who do home birth or free birth, whatever, have a lot of hangups around feeling nervous to ever suggest it or bring it up because mm -hmm. they don't want to be in people's businesses and they don't want to tell people what to do. And it's like, yeah, but what about being 
lovingly inspiring what about planting seeds you know like speak yeah I love Mm -hmm. that because that woman changed your life she did she absolutely did if I had not had that conversation I would not be sitting here basically so speak up women speak up (laughs) um and I went to see a GP in Australia you have to have a referral um and he was without I didn't know it at the time but he was a bit alternative and he said I said oh so so what's the next step you know I was almost excited about the whole mental the medical sort of you know conveyor belt because I'm like what 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 am I going to get next you know Mm -hmm. said oh nothing till 20 weeks don't worry about it like nothing and so I didn't do anything for 20 weeks and I took my time finding a midwife I had no idea that you had to basically like lock in a private midwife legs really quickly otherwise you know you probably wouldn't get one um so I just I just chilled for the first 20 weeks like 16 you know 19 weeks of that pregnancy I was just like oh, whatever started looking for a midwife most of them were booked out by the time that I um, was looking and there were three that could fit me in um I went and saw the first one and she was an older woman and she was lovely and she palpated me and you know it was all very nice and then she said that they would bring resource equipment to my house and they said it'll just sit in the corner we won't have to use it it'll just be there and my sort of initial instinct was like, well, I don't want it to be there. <laughs> you know, that's kind of creating a story that I don't want to create. So you were already kind of tuned into, because I feel like a lot of women do want it to be there because, oh my gosh, just in case, right? Mm-hmm. But mm. you were already not feeling that? No, it, it didn't feel right to me. I thought it, it, it's like creating something that doesn't need to be created you know um and the second the second midwife I saw uh was interesting she talked about herself for the first 20 minutes of our oh my God. she was literally like oh you live in Fitzroy North well and she just started banging on about a bike accident she'd had and all this random stuff yeah. and I'm sitting there like this is my first pregnancy don't you care like yeah it was odd Um, And then she proceeded to tell me that she transfers 50% of first-time mothers to hospital. Hey, at least she was honest. Most of them aren't. Mm. And I said, why? Like, what's the reason? And she said, oh, you know, they get tired. (laughs) I was like, okay. Um, And then... I met with the third midwife. Now, I was sort of avoiding this midwife because she's sort of known as the radical midwife. And actually, the first midwife had warned me against her. And I met with her and I was immediately, I fell in love. I just thought, she's amazing. She asked me all about myself. She asked me what my relationship was like with my mother. She asked me, you know, just everything about me. And she was her 
model of care was woman-centered. So she had this infographic of the woman at the center and then, you know, all the services around. And she worked with an acupuncturist who, you know, she used to help women during pregnancy and labor and, you know, um, all this stuff. And I just want to caveat this by saying that since my birth a few a couple of years later she came to realize that she was a midwife um, and went through her own awakening to do with that she was deregistered you said she you, she came to realize she was a midwife mm -hmm. yeah 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 so she thought that she could play the game and be a good girl yeah and if she did everything right and then just served women that everything would be okay and she didn't realize how much she was compromising along the way and so she's she's realized that now hey maybe i can have her on the podcast mm, yeah i think that would be great no. um so it was interesting being in her care um at certain points i was trying to give her my power and she was giving it back and then but to do with other things I realize now my power was taken away. Like she just used the Doppler. So she she was the one who, when I first rang her on the phone said, I said, oh, I'm about to go for my ultrasound. And she said, oh, you know, um, a lot of my clients don't get ultrasounds. And I was like, oh, really? She said, yeah, yeah, I'll send you an article. And she sent me, the, I think it's a Sarah Buckley. Is it Sarah Buckley article about ultrasound? Yeah, I read that and I was like, right, I'm not having an ultrasound. <laughs> but then she'd use the Doppler on me and I didn't know that that was ultrasound. So that's sort of one of the things that, mm -hmm. that yeah. Um, so I went along in her care. I was so happy. And um, at one of our prenatal appointments, I arrived a little bit early and I thought, oh, let's just go to a cafe and chill for, you know, 15 minutes or whatever. And all throughout my pregnancy, I allowed myself one coffee in the morning. And this morning I walked in, you know, not, not intending to get a second coffee, but I was like, Ooh, iced coffee. <laughs> and I had, I got an iced coffee. I went to my appointment. She did some monitoring with the Doppler and the heartbeat was irregular. <clears throat> it was like the cadence was off. And so she said, oh, uh, I'm just going to put the, the monitor, the strap monitor on your belly and just see what's what's happening here. So she put the, the strap monitor on and the heartbeat was irregular. And she said, oh, um, I'm, I think I'm going to have to send you to the hospital just so that they can monitor what's happening here. And I was like... Oh my gosh. I just, Harry and I just held hands. We were just like, what is going on here? And how far along are you at the pregnancy? Uh, I think I was about, I reckon I was like 30 something weeks. Yeah, early 30 something weeks. And um, so I did some Googling. She's like, oh, I don't know what it is. You might just have to be under the, you know, supervision of a cardiologist. 
I did some Googling and one of the causes of, you know, uh, an irregular fetal heartbeat is too much caffeine. I was like, oh, that's what it is. That's what it is. So uh, she said, take your time going to the hospital. So I went home. I chugged about a litre of water, had some toast, went to the hospital. They monitored me for an hour on their machine and everything was fine. Everything was normal. Uh, the obstetrician sat down with me and she said, yeah, look, um, everything's fine. Um, I'm happy for you to continue to have a home birth with your home birth midwife. She said, but if you came into the hospital, it would be in the back of my mind what happened today, you know. And I was like, well, I'm not going to the hospital then. <laughs> um, other than that, it was a completely normal pregnancy and a really enjoyable one. I just loved, loved, loved being pregnant. And um, yeah, it was just, it was wonderful. Um, so I was manifesting a four hour labor at 38 weeks, right? That's what I was gonna do. <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> So you were kind of over it and wanted it to be fast? Uh, I don't know why I, I, I landed on that. I think I thought that that would, um, that would allow me to, you know, get through it. It mm -hmm. would just happen and I wouldn't think about it. Yeah, totally. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's what everyone says about birth. I didn't even, I didn't even notice. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. I just want it to happen, you know. Oh, little did I know. <sighs> Um, <laughs> so 38 weeks went by and then 40 weeks went by and then um, it was like I was 41 plus one I think and there was a pink full moon and I finally went into labor I finally had some contractions and I was so happy and they really ramped up and um, they got to about four minutes apart and we called the midwife and she said, oh, you know, call me back when you can't talk and all this sort of stuff. And it ramped up and then at about two or three in the morning, it slowed down and dropped off. And the contractions sort of about once it, one, one every 20 minutes or something like that. And I didn't know it at the time, but this would happen for eight days. So I would have plenty of time to think about it <laughs> and plenty of time. Yeah, it was a head fuck basically is what it was. So every single night for eight nights, the contractions would ramp up and I would think this is it, except for the second and the fifth night, I was just angry. I was just so, so angry yeah. that I didn't even care if I was going to give birth. I was just like, this is bullshit. I mean, you know? and she never, she didn't come to be with you? She came once during, once or twice during the day. And once I went to her while I was, yeah. And it was oh. a long, it was a long drive. It was on the other side of the city. And I remember being in the car, clutching the handle, just like, Oh, this is so uncomfortable because they kept the contractions kept going during the day um they you know might be every 20 40 minutes or something like that but they were still happening I didn't really get you know a big break throughout those eight days um 
it was a very odd labour and I just couldn't find, I couldn't find anyone who'd been through it. Mm. All my Googling were like normal. You know, even if a woman's labour was a long time, it seemed like it never went more than a couple of days. Mm. And I just had no idea what was going on. And it was almost like no one believed that I was actually in labour, you know, but I was like, well, <laughs> I am actually in labour every single night. So it was, it was a massive head fuck and I just felt so alone. I'm just like, what is going on, you know? Um, and... <sighs> <laughs> on the I think it was about the fourth day I got up and I'm like fuck this and I just like stripped my bed and I threw everything into the washing machine and then I was looking for my phone and I was like oh my gosh and I just heard it banging in the washing no! machine. because you know what I told everybody that I'd got into labor on the first night so I was just getting text mm -hmm. after text after text where's the baby where's the and so I think that was my subconscious way of just come going within and going, I, I can't deal with those questions anymore. <laughs> um, yeah, to all you first time moms listening, don't do that. No. <laughs> don't, don't tell everybody. <laughs> exactly. Because you might have an eight day labor and then you'll get hounded. Exactly. And it was so painful to just be like, I don't know where the baby is. Totally. Leave me alone. Leave me alone. Um, so the midwife. Uh, she's, I went to see the obstetrician on the Friday. I'd been in labour since the Tuesday. She sent me to see him because she was concerned that my waters were leaking. Hmm. Um, so I went to see the obstetrician. He palpated and he was like, no, nah, you've got heaps of fluid. He picked up the um, ultrasound little device to go give me an ultrasound. And I was like, no, thank you. No, thank you. And he was like, oh okay he's like yep yeah, you're fine and just sent me home so I you know went through my thing over the weekend and it got to Tuesday night mm. um the midwife came over in the evening and she's like oh look you've got to relax <laughs> no you've just got to relax yeah, yeah. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. She's like, have a glass of wine, watch a movie. I was like, wine in a movie? I said, I need tequila and a joint. Like, this is, you know, reached, you know, critical. And she's like, have a joint. And I was like, oh, okay, um, cool. So she left and Harry went next door to <laughs> the backpackers who lived next door and banged on their door. My wife uh, in labor needs weed. Yes, exactly. He said, hey, my girlfriend's in labor. The midwife said that a joint might help. Have you got any weed? And they're like, sure. <laughs> and they're just like, oh, my gosh. They're like, bring us the baby to meet. Yeah, right. has it. You know, like. So I puffed on like half a joint and I completely shifted. I remember being on the couch and just kicking my legs. I think I was holding so much tension in my legs and my pelvis. I was just kicking my legs and laughing and going, what have I been afraid of? What have I been afraid of? So it was a complete mm. relief, you know. Um, the midwife then called me and said, oh, uh, I've spoken to the obstetrician and he assumed that you'd given labour over the weekend. And he said, if you don't, give birth he said 
given birth over the weekend. He said, if you don't give birth tonight, you have to go to the hospital. And I was like, okay. And she said, look, it's going to be okay. I'll come with you. Just don't worry about it. Just try to get some rest tonight and I'll see you. Don't worry about it. I'm going to threaten you with a horrible threat. That's not even actually true. Mm. You don't have to do anything. What she should have said is, by my rules and regulations, I am not able to come to your house because, Mm. you know, my supervisor essentially told me that it's not okay. That's different Mm. than you have to go to the hospital. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But just try to relax. Yeah, yeah. Oh my God. (laughs) Watch a movie. (laughs) Gosh. Yeah. So she sent the acupuncturist to my house. And the acupuncturist came over and she's like, have you been laboring in the lounge room? Have you been spending most of your time in the lounge room? Because my pool was set up in the lounge room and everything like that. And I'm like, yeah. And she's like, oh, it's a bit public, you know. She said, how about we go into your bedroom and I'll put the pins in and, and we'll see how we go. And I'm like, okay. So I lay down in the dark in my bedroom. She put some pins in. She set up a little nest next to my bed and fell asleep. (laughs) And so I'm laying there like, I went into sort of a meditative state, sort of half sleep, half awake. And I was like imagining myself, you know, opening. The acupuncturist gets up, she pulls the pins out and she said, look, I've got to go home to get some rest because I'm probably going to have to come to the hospital with you tomorrow. Just try to relax. Um, This is about four in the morning. She said, try to relax and um, I'll see you tomorrow at the hospital. She said, I can't put any pins in you, but I could do some acupressure. And I'm like, oh, okay, okay. So she left. And then probably about five minutes after she walked out the door, I started pushing. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. I went from a very calm, meditative state on the bed that she did not recognize as labor to pushing. Yeah. You yeah. know, I, I have seen that and heard of that not infrequently with those long night labor, calm down in the day, a lot of birth stories that have that pattern, then mm. it's just on at the mm. very end and fairly quick. Yeah. Mm. Wow. Okay. So you just start pushing. Thank God. Yeah. Yeah, thank God, exactly. And um, I, I'd really wanted a water birth, but obviously, you know, that didn't happen because everyone was just like, oh my gosh, it's happening, it's happening. So I started pushing and I told Harry, call the midwife, call the midwife. And he called her and um, I was on the all fours on the bed pushing and he put her on speaker And I said, I'm having this baby tonight. I don't care. This is happening. You know, blah, 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 blah. I was like so determined. And she's like, okay, okay. Call me when, you know, blah, 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 blah. Like still not believing that I was in labor. Hung up the phone. I kept doing my thing. And then she said that she went back to bed. And then thought, yeah, she went back to bed. And then she had the thought that maybe... I had I was making pushy sounds yeah and she was like actually I'd better go and she walked in with about I think 
an hour or two. It was about an hour before I actually gave birth. So um, I pushed for four hours and I gave birth on the bed and oh, the pushing felt amazing, by the way. Oh my gosh. After eight days, it was like the best feeling in the whole world. I just thought uh, that birth, you know, I, it wasn't ever, it wasn't ever what I would describe as overwhelmingly painful. It was intense and it was energetic and even slightly pleasurable at some points. Like it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, like my second birth. Well, all. yeah, you had eight days to go through the process. Mm -hmm. How many hours was your second birth? Seven. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense to me. I mean, I had a similar, mine was not eight days. Mine was three, but I had a similar, like, yeah, it wasn't painful. And then my second one was like, ah. Yeah. It was mentally painful. But yeah, yeah, fair enough. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. yeah, yeah. Um, and it was just so wonderful. Like Eve, her birth, it was just so wonderful. There's a, there's a photo of me just like, just this big smile on my face when she came out and I just I was just saying isn't she pretty like I was just so ecstatic like it was really really wonderful and yeah I was so happy um it, it was interesting though like I I birthed the placenta and I Harry held her skin to skin and I went to have a shower and while I was in the shower, they weighed her and did all the all the measurements and everything. And I was like, Ooh. I wanted I wanted to be there for that. Like I, you know, why would you do that when I'm in the shower? Like that was a bit weird. And then I got back into bed with her and you know, the midwife cleaned up and everything like that. And then she wouldn't breastfeed. I couldn't get her to latch. And the midwife kind of tried to force her onto my boob and she wouldn't, she wouldn't take it. She just cried until we stopped trying to force her. Mm. And then the midwife left. And so I was left with this baby who wasn't breastfeeding. And... Um, she latched a couple of times that night, but it wasn't, I couldn't feel like a proper suckling. It was just this really weak kind of, hmm. and I couldn't, I couldn't feel her really any, you know, anything happening. And that began our very difficult uh, breastfeeding journey, um, which was so painful and quite, traumatic actually so the sort of pattern of what would happen is you know um I would freak out that she wasn't breastfeeding enough um that I wasn't feeling a latch the midwife would come over she would assist a latch and she would say okay that's good that's good and you know baby would just kind of just be half suckling and I'd just be like this doesn't this doesn't feel right throughout the day baby might be suckling Evie was suckling for like two hours straight and stuff, but there was no, and then just sort of passing out. Like there was no like, 
it, it didn't feel right to me. Mm. And I knew on a deep, deep level that something was wrong and it didn't feel like anybody was acknowledging it around me. You know, everybody was like, she's fine, she's fine. And, you know, whenever the midwife would come over, she would latch on and she would observe and say, it's fine, it's fine. Anyway, she'd been weighing her and after, I think it was, it was a week, she lost too much weight. Um, she, she, she dropped back down to her um, birth weight and then she dropped more. And basically the midwife said, okay, you've got two options. We either go to the hospital and she gets a breathing tube or you get donor milk and you give her a bottle immediately tonight. With those two options in my mind, obviously I went with the donor milk. <clears throat> so she contacted one of her other clients who had some frozen milk. Harry went and picked it up. We bought a bottle. Um, she said, get yourself a breast pump. I went to like a, uh, Harry went to the hospital where they rented out breast pumps like 24 hours a day, got me a breast pump. And we began the joys of triple feeding. So uh, <clears throat> we were on a 24 hour clock and it was every three hours and the whole process took, you know, <laughs> um, an hour and a half. So um, yeah, so that was my first two weeks, completely sleep deprived completely full of adrenaline and um, scared out of my mind mm -hmm. and wondering wondering where I'd gone wrong and um, the midwife telling me she had a tongue tie and me not wanting to acknowledge that. I didn't want to um, admit that that was the case. I felt like I had spent so much of my time and energy trying to protect her, my little baby from being traumatized that I did not want to accept that I would have to cut her mouth in order for her to breastfeed. But she just wasn't interested in the breast. Like I, I called it rage against the boob. Every time during the triple feeding fiasco, I tried to get her to, to accept the boob before I pumped and before I gave her the bottle and pumped, she would scream. She'd just scream at my nipple. Like she just did not want anything to do with my breast. Oh, so stressful. It was so, it was, it was so, it was awful. And meanwhile, the, the narrative within, you know, all of the circles that I was conscious of was just keep trying drink lots of water <laughs> you'll get there you know you get it established by six weeks and then everything's fine you know all that stuff and it just I was just like this is not relevant for me and, yeah. and what's going on for me you know I felt so alone and um then the midwife added me to a tongue-tie Facebook group and I immediately saw a picture of a baby going like this. You know, they suck the, and I was like, oh, that's what Eve does. Mm -hmm. And that image changed my mind. Mm -hmm. And I was like, okay, all right, I need to do something about this. Like that's obviously, uh, you know, an issue. And I did a bit of research and, you know, it can affect speech. And I, I had no illusions that 
getting the tongue tie released would um, help her breastfeed because there was no breastfeeding relationship established, none whatsoever. So for me, it was about the long-term um, effects on speech and things like that. So we had her tongue tie released at um, six weeks with a water laser and it was awful uh, to hand my baby over to someone to be taken into a room to have that done and immediately afterwards they're like put her on the breast put her on the breast you know that'll help her calm down like a normal baby but there had been no breastfeeding relationship established and it was the bottle that would calm her down and so I had this person in the clinic trying to force me to put my baby on my breast and I'm saying no and I basically had to growl at the woman to get away from me so that I could give my baby a bottle oh. and it was yeah it was awful um you know it just made me feel like I was a complete failure and then you know you've got the the weeks of like you know going like that with the wound to make sure it doesn't close over because your number one fear is having to do it again <laughs> you know you'd rather do those exercises than having to do it again so and I was left quite traumatized by that whole thing I couldn't look at breastfeeding material online I was part of all these you know natural parenting and natural birth groups and breastfeeding stuff would just trigger me I was just like you know I can't I can't deal with that um you're like an open wound yeah so I gave her donor milk through a bottle for 14 months and that was you know a feat in itself I pumped for five months <laughs> and in the I I look back at it now I'm like why did I pump I was getting like probably <laughs> I was getting between I don't know 10 and 30 percent of her milk pumping and it was so awful yeah but totally and I mean I get I get get that and wanting her to have some of you and like you were doing everything you could think of and you know it's Mm. complicated Mm. yeah it's so emotional I mean it's it's not Mm. maybe the most logical Mm. you know for your like mental health and all that but it it also makes sense yeah yeah totally exactly and um, so, yeah, but after that was sort of resolved and I stopped trying to latch her mm-hmm. and we were in our little routine with the bottles, it was just wonderful. You know, yeah, I loved, I loved being a mother to Evie and, you know, she just became my best friend, totally. you know, especially when she was about six months, you know, we just we just had a great little time together and she was such an easy baby. I used to call her my happy baby. She was just so happy, so calm, so grounded. Um, and she was just always smiling. Like I've literally got thousands of photos of her just like (laughs) always smiling. Um, yeah, she was amazing. And when she was 18 months, we, decided to move to the country and uh, we went to the other side of the country where my partner's from, um, three hours south of Perth in Margaret River, which is like a country town, to start a new lifestyle. And um, within three months of being there, I got pregnant again with my second daughter. 
<clears throat> How old is Evie at this point? Uh, Evie was, uh, when I got pregnant, she was just over 18 months, so about 20 months. Mm-hmm. Yeah, about 20 months. Um, so, you know, that was great. I was like, oh, cool, I'm going to have a nice little gap, blah, blah, blah. Um, and within two weeks of getting pregnant, I was like, I'm free birthing. This is what I'm doing. Had you already heard about it? So when I, after I'd given birth to Evie, before I got pregnant with Freya, my friend added me to your Facebook page, to the Free Birth Society Facebook page. And I remember getting onto the page and the first photo I saw was a blonde woman from Sydney sitting on the floor of her bathroom just having free birth and I was like I'm like huh like I I just couldn't comprehend what why doesn't she have a midwife these women are crazy what's going on like I just couldn't comprehend it um and then I started reading I started as soon as I was um thinking about having another baby I listened to the podcast and I was like oh yeah I feel like I feel like every woman on this podcast is like at first I thought you guys were crazy yeah I couldn't stop thinking about it and then I got obsessed and then I free birthed <laughs> yep. it's, it's a remembering of an ancient truth yeah and the remembering of an ancient truth and the slothing away of lies always feels so right and good and inspirational and and that's what happens you know and um so yeah within two weeks I was like I'm free birthing this baby and I was in a small town you know there was it's not like there was a lot of choice of midwives you know um yeah so when I was I was about to go see a holistic um GP who was also an obstetrician I was going to see her just to do like the paperwork and all that sort of stuff and I waited until I was you know entering my third trimester to have an appointment with her um and on the day I think it was the day before I was supposed to have an appointment with her I was just about to enter my third trimester um Evie had had a bit of a cough and was a bit sick the night before. And for the first time in her life, she was like around two. Um, I checked on her. I sort of opened her door and had a little check on her before I went to bed to make sure she was okay. But I'd never done that before. And then in the morning when we woke up, she was like, she had mottled skin and it looked like her breathing was slightly laboured. And we were like, mm, okay. We tried to get her in to see a local doctor, but they didn't have any appointments. So Harry took her to the emergency room. And I thought he was slightly overreacting. <laughs> I'm like, oh, we can just wait for a doctor's appointment. It's probably just a virus or something like that. But he took her to the emergency room. And I was like, okay. And then he calls me and he said, they've listened to her heart. And they said she's got a murmur 
and they want to send her up to the big hospital in Bunbury, which is like 90 minutes north. So you're going to have to come to the hospital. And I was like, oh, okay. Um, he said, we're going in the ambulance. I'm like, oh, okay. So I met him at the hospital. I got in the car. I drove up. And they, they said, we're going to x-ray her. Um, <clears throat> and she went in for an x-ray. We were in the emergency area of the hospital. They came out. Uh, before, before they got the x-ray results, they said, look, you know, um, if, it's, if it's something that we're not quite sure about, we're going to send you to Perth to the cardiology department. If not, um, she can stay here and, and we'll, we'll work out a plan. And we're like, okay, cool. And then they came back in and their faces had changed. And they said, we're going to send you to Perth. Um, we've warned the cardiology ward that you're coming um, and they'll explain what's going on. Mm. And there was no room to ask a question. Oh my God. I felt like there was no space to ask what was going on. Um, so I get into this ambulance with my baby and the one of the ambulance officers, not the one who was sitting in the back with me, but the one who was driving was hostile towards me. And I couldn't work out why. And we got to Perth Children's Hospital and we went into the you know, triage emergency and she spoke to the, um, the, the doctor there and she slammed down Eve's file and she said, and she's not vaccinated. Oh, wow. And I was like, okay, cool. No compassion whatsoever. <laughs> no, the, the unvaccinated in a medical facility are like the, you know, the, the plague. Mm. Oh, and I'm, I'm like I'm, sub sub citizen. Yeah. And I'm a terrible mother. Of course. So anything that's wrong with her must be my fault. And because she didn't get a ton of shots, mm. you know, mm -hmm. of course it's linked to that somehow. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> wow. That's intense. Yeah. And so I was sitting there with Evie. They got us up to the cardiology ward pretty quickly. It was about nine o'clock at night by this point we'd be just been shuffled around all day um the cardiologist and the um stenographer the person who takes ultrasounds of the heart came in and they gave evie a little ultrasound of the heart while we were sitting there in her in one of the rooms and um they were like muttering away and we were sitting there and uh, he asked, he, when he'd finished, he asked us about Eve, you know, and I said, look, you know, she's a home birth. She has been completely healthy. She's literally never been sick. Like literally she was never sick. She got her first virus after her second birthday. Cause there were so many kids in the house, but prior to that, she'd never even had a cold. <laughs> and I always put it down to all of the donor milk. I was like, she had you know, 50 women's breast milk. So all of these antibodies had protected. <laughs> and she'd just never been sick. So I thought I had this super healthy baby. 
yeah? And uh, she'd walked late. But besides that, all of her developmental milestones had been hit or what even is, early. What does late mean? Oh, late, 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 late. Like okay. uh, 22 months. Oh, that is late. Yeah. And, but she was walking, holding my hand uh-huh. and, and pulling herself up on furniture for months before that. Interesting. So when she didn't walk by 18 months, I took her to a GP and I said, look, I know 18 months is the, the cutoff point. Um, what, you know, what might be going on here? And the GP observed her pull herself up and walk around a chair and went and sort of like checked her hips and checked a couple of other things, didn't listen to her heart mm. and said, she's fine. Do you think it's related? Yeah. Okay. In the end, it was related. Okay. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. If, if, yeah. So we told him all that and he said, oh, one of the cardiologists in my team didn't walk till he was two. He said, you know, some kids just walk late. You know, he said, that's not an indication of anything. So he said, I'm going to need you guys to sit down. You think you've got a healthy child. So what I'm about to tell you is going to be really difficult to hear. Um, he said, your Evie has three heart defects. She has two holes in her heart. She's got a VSD and an ASD. And she also has a co-opted aorta leading to the bottom half of her body. So that explains why the bottom half of her body was uh, less developed. Um, and yeah, I mean, obviously it was a huge shock. It's, yeah, your whole reality shifts yeah. in that moment. And actually one of the things that shifted in my reality was my breastfeeding journey. Like immediately I went, oh, okay, that's why. That's why. And at the time that didn't explain it all, but as I get down, you know, for the rest of the story, it does explain it all. Um, they moved her into a more permanent, like private room. They wheeled her across the hallway. Harry and I followed and Harry and I just stopped in the middle of the hallway and just hugged each other. Like we just, we didn't, you know, <laughs> it, it was complete shock. Um, he went home. Was the doctor like, this is the deal and it's really, really bad or like it's fixable? Like, was there like a. He, he didn't want to make any. Yeah. Yeah. Cause like, he I didn't... don't know what that really means. It doesn't sound good, but I don't know. Right. Anyway, I mean, I, I think he might have mentioned possible surgery, yeah. but I think at the time he didn't want to say too much because she was older when she was diagnosed and her heart had compensated in a few ways that would have complicated things. And yeah, there's there's a few other little complications in there, and I don't think he wanted to make any. Um, yeah, he didn't want to make any big statement. How old is she again at this point? Uh. Two years, three months. Two years, three months. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so uh, the first thing I did after Harry left, because he had to go home to the dogs and pack a bag and all that sort of stuff, was I got onto the Free Birth Society <laughs> community 
and I just told everybody what was happening because I needed to tell somebody and I just couldn't tell anyone you know else at that moment and I knew that that community was a safe place for me in the morning I told my family and everybody and uh yeah basically I blamed myself I blamed myself for a while and after three days Harry and I sat down and we discussed everything that had happened from when I got pregnant right up to that point and we analysed every decision along the way and everything that had happened and we came to the conclusion that we probably wouldn't have done anything any differently, mm-hmm. that there wasn't really any point where it was obvious to have her checked by a paediatrician or take her anywhere, you know what I mean? Like, so we, we made peace with it ourselves, but there's always that thread of me blaming myself as the mother and it's all and it, meaning, and it's meaning that you sh- sorry the blaming meaning that you should have caught something like what what was the story of blame exactly uh, well his mother kept saying there's something wrong with her and wanted me to you know have her checked out by a pediatrician and she had a friend who was a doctor who examined Evie and gave a referral to some doctor who was like three hours away and six hundred dollars and I just I didn't I I didn't think there was anything wrong with her and you know when she wasn't walking at 20 months and I was at Christmas my aunt came up to me and said aren't you worried aren't you worried you know so there was this influence of worry from older women around me and it didn't it didn't sink in and for me, that's because it was meant to happen when it happened. Sure. You know, it, she wasn't meant to be caught any earlier and and it would, never would have made any difference. Like when I get to the end of the story, mm. no matter when she had her surgery, she wouldn't have made it. Mm. And, you know, there's a sort of... That's a huge piece to hang on to, right? Yeah because there's this sort of story that if I'd caught it earlier, it wouldn't have been so complicated and she would have made it, but that's, that that there was something else that they missed anyway. So that that's irrelevant, but on a spiritual level, her little soul said two and a half years, I need two and a half years. And I went, okay, you know, and that's it. Um, And so so wait, at the point that you found this out, you only had three more months with her? Oh, fuck. Wow, that is so fast. Yeah. 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 So we had a lot of joyful time together, you know, with, with a seemingly healthy child who we took to Bali. We took her to Byron Bay. We took her to Bali when she was six months. You know what I mean? None of that would have happened if we'd known. Right. Yeah, totally. You know, and she loved Bali. Who doesn't love Bali? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And uh, so what happened was they took some blood and everything like that. And what they realized over the next few days is that her labored breathing and her mottled skin was actually from a blood infection that she'd picked up and it wasn't from the heart 
condition. And so they gave her antibiotics and then they saw the EV that we'd been living with and said, oh, we thought that we had a cardiac patient come in who happened to have a blood infection, but we've had a blood infection patient who, who happens to have a cardiac issue because Whoa. they saw that she's actually quite animated and normal looking. They saw the, the EV that we saw, you know, because when, we first, when she first got diagnosed and we're looking at her, we're like, how could we have not known? And then they gave her the antibiotics and we're like, this is the EV that we know, right? So over the next two to three months, we went through the rigmarole of the medical interventions. Now, the first thing they wanted to do was check that her lungs would respond if she had heart surgery. So they do what's called a catheter test um, where they put a little tube in the lungs and do some kind of oxygen test. I'm not really sure of, of what it is, but basically she had to go in for a minor surgery before the major surgery. And the outcome of that surgery would tell us if she was eligible to have the massive open heart surgery to basically fix her heart, right? Um, so the catheter test was a success. Um, we had to wait for it because the only person who could perform it in Perth was on leave. And so we had to wait a while. And so I think it was like, it was about three, three weeks or something like that, which was a really long wait <laughs> when you found out something like this. Um, and then that was a success. And what we discovered during that time is that Evie doesn't respond to things like other kids. So, you know, they wanted to give her some ketamine before they had to give her a scan prior to this surgery. And they had to give her about five times as much as they give a child her weight, you know, um, there was some pre-surgery drug that is supposed to sedate children before they take them in for the pre-surgery, you know, mask and everything. In 5% of children, it makes them hyper. She got so hyper. You know, she just was an odd case. And, and she was an odd case in general. Like, they just couldn't believe that a child with ASD, VSD and a coarcted aorta had grown because she was actually still within the normal range of of weight for her. I mean, when I'd started bottle feeding her, she went from the fifth percentile to the 35th percentile. And that's when these heart kids usually get picked up is when they don't thrive on formula. So if it's not picked up in utero and it's not picked up because a lot of, it's hard to pick up a murmur with a newborn. Um, most of them are picked up when they don't thrive on formula, but she thrived and she was in the normal weight range and they could not work it out. A cardiologist with over 30 years experience looked at her one day and went, I just can't work out how she's grown. Mm -hmm. Like he just couldn't work it out um, because their blood is just not as oxygenated and their lungs really struggle with the consequences of, of these heart defects. So she was a bit of a miracle. And um, the first time she was supposed to go into surgery, she got RSV. She picked up RSV at the hospital during all the pre-surgery tests that they do. Oh. Yeah, and the pre-surgery tests are traumatic within themselves. Like they have to take blood and all this stuff and it's just so, so traumatic. I remember at the end of the first round of pre-surgery tests, she'd screamed the house down when oh. they tried to take blood and 
you know, we, she was like, we got out to the car park and she was all sweaty and I was holding her and I was going to get the ticket for the car parking. And she looked at me and she said, mommy, I'm sorry, sorry, mommy. And I said, honey, you've got nothing to be sorry about. Okay. You've got nothing to be sorry about. You've done your best. And I know it's hard. And then a few days later, she developed RSV and so she couldn't have her surgery. Now, yes, I was just going to say, meanwhile, I'm about to give birth. I'm in my oh, third. Oh, wait, you're that pregnant. I'm in my third trimester approaching. Oh. Yeah. So she gets RSV and they're supposed to wait six weeks after RSV to give surgery. The surgeon decides that they need to do this surgery before I give birth. Okay. That was his decision. Wow. This is so intense. Third yeah. trimester. So his Ooh. decision was, we're going to do the surgery five weeks after she gets RSV. By the way, she had to be hospitalized for the RSV. So we had another hospital stay where she had to have like an oxygen pump, you know, thing on her nose for days and, you know, she was almost taken, yeah, she was almost taken to the ICU during that stay, but she ended up recovering, we came home with an extra medication that she hated and um, had to wait again for the surgery. And the waiting, during that, that time between when I thought she was going to get the surgery and when she got the RSV and we had to wait was the hardest, hardest time of my life, like, and the whole time there was this knowing inside of me that she wasn't going to make it. Mm. And one night I remember during that time, I went into the bathroom and I, I just screamed like this primal scream came out of me. Um, and I didn't even do that after she died. It was almost like a pre knowing. Um, so in, so the, in this, space there's still obviously hopefulness because she's going to have the surgery which is yeah. supposed to hopefully fix the defect yeah. yeah so in the pre-surgery interview with the surgeon he said she has an 85 to 90 percent chance of walking away with zero complications Whoa. so yeah and and she's not the first child in the world to have discovered a heart defect later on you know we were when we were in the recovery there was a nine-year-old who came through her particular three defects are usually picked up earlier but um you know they said it's not unheard of and they said because of the nature of everything she should have no complications you should have a normal child after this right so that's what I was telling myself intellectually that's what I was telling everybody else oh don't worry just imagine Evie running around happy with a big scar on her chest. That's what I want everyone to envision, right? That's what's going to happen. So uh, we go in for the surgery and, um, you know, you have to sit around and, 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 you know, her going in was traumatic because they couldn't give her any pre-surgery sedatives because she didn't respond to any pre-surgery sedatives so Harry had to hold her while she was kicking and screaming and they put the mask on her face yeah. I'll never forget that 
and he won't either. And so uh, that was oh. the last we saw her uh, conscious. And um, that was the last time you saw her conscious. Oh, yeah, wow. well, not drugged. Um, so she went in for the surgery, and they give you updates. So the nurse will call you throughout the day. You're in the hospital and she'll say, oh, yes, well, they're at this stage and everything seems to be going well and blah, 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 blah. And we had a couple of updates like that. And then she called and said, I'm going to need you to come upstairs. And we were like, okay. And so we went upstairs and the cardiologist, who was the original one who we'd been seeing the whole time, was quite animated and full of adrenaline. And he said, uh, yeah, um, she wasn't able to come off the breathing tube. She keeps crashing every time they try to bring her off. Um, they tried to bring her off. And so they opened one of the holes that they closed in hopes that that would relieve the stress on her system so that she would come off. She hasn't. So we're going to have to put her on an ECMO machine and, and I just need to warn you that this is very serious, right? <clears throat> so I'll, I won't go into too much detail, but basically an ECMO machine is a external heart and lung. You, you know, you worked in ICU yeah, a little bit. Yeah. But you can explain, I mean, yeah, give, give the listeners some context if you want. Uh, yeah, so the, the chest remains open and the blood is pumped through a machine, basically, to act as the heart and lungs. Um, and they prepared me for that and they, you know, they have the plastic thing over the open chest and then when the parents approach, they kind of throw a blanket over so you don't see what's going on under there. So as we approached, they threw a blanket over our chest and uh, yeah, I mean, it was completely surreal those first few days while she was on ECMO. I can't remember much of it. Um, they, it was a brand new hospital. So they had like apartments where you could stay. So they put us in the apartments within the hospital. So we were only a, a, an elevate, a, elevator ride away from her the whole time. Um, and they said to us, I, and when I sat down with the surgeon after the cardiologist had spoken to me and she'd been wheeled into ICU, I sat down with the surgeon and I said, this is how they die, isn't it? They don't die on the table. They die in here, don't they? And he said, yes, they do. And, I, and immediately I said, well, who's to say that a two and a half year life is less worthy than an 80 year life? You know, I mean... And I got philosophical straight away. And he said he was shocked about that. And um, so we went in to see her and he said, we'll try and get her off the ECMO in three days. Um, if she doesn't get off the ECMO the first time, it just gets worse from there. So um, we had to wait three days. After three days, they got her off the ECMO. She came off on the first go. And I was, everyone was just so happy, you know, fantastic. She's off the ECMO, which was a big relief because they could actually close her chest. Um, and then, uh, then, you know, there was a sort of series of things that needed to happen after that. So 
you know, the drainage tubes needed to come out next. But a couple of nights later, she, they, there was so much blood coming out of the draining tubes that there was about 10 people around her bed. Um, and there was, it was sort of an emergency and the, the consultant was worried and everyone was worried. And, you know, me and Harry and his mum were sitting by her bed and we didn't really understand why everybody was freaking out so much. And basically she would have had an internal hemorrhage. And so the surgeon had to come back in, open her up again and um, fix the hemorrhage. Uh, that was on the Friday night. And uh, then, um, then a couple of days later, the, the, the drainage tubes came out. And then a couple of days later, the, uh, the pacemaker came out. And so everything was, you know, moving along and she'd responded well to everything. And, um, you know, they'd come in and, and they'd look at her heart and they'd say, oh, you know, well done surgeon and, and what a great job and her heart's looking great. And, you know, everything's looking great. And there was all this hope because it had looked so dire and now they got to the point where it was just the breathing tube. But was she still in like a sedative state? Heavily, heavily sedated. Okay. Um, because they had so much trouble intubating her with the first um, surgery, they'd given her a smaller intubation tube. And so after all of this, they were starting to try to bring her up out of the sedation occasionally. And when they brought her up out of the sedation, at one point, one of the consultants, my favorite consultant said, oh, you can give her a little ice lolly if you want, like an ice block, because she's got a smaller tube. So she, she'll probably be able to swallow. And so I was able to give her icy poles when she came up out of her um, sedation, which was such a blessing for her to be able to have something some pleasure in all of that horrificness. <laughs> um, and she didn't respond to anything like any other kids. So, you know, a consultant who was a specialist in pediatric cardiology, he'd traveled the world, he'd done it all. He said, she is her own universe. Eve is a universe unto herself. Um, another consultant said, she needs her own textbook. She just did not respond to anything. The, she didn't fit into any of their stupid little clinical boxes, basically. Um, and they could not work out why she wouldn't come off the breathing tube. So the first time they tried to get her off the breathing tube, she crashed. And they tried every few days after that. So she was in ICU for a total of 17 days. Um, it came to... A, fri uh, a Friday, I went for a, an energy healing session. Um, the next day was Saturday and this was day 16 and her colour had just changed. Like I looked at her and I was like, there is just something that's different about her. And her heart was doing different things on the monitor. Um, and they were all trying to tell me that it was normal that whatever was happening on the monitor had happens to kids, you know, in this situation all the time. And I just, it, I knew it wasn't normal for her, you know, and they got us away from the bed when this happened um, 
to, so they could do something to her. And I was sitting there with Harry and for the first time I said to him, maybe we should just let her go. Um, and then she, she, she was gone the next morning. So the next morning they called us at 5 a.m. They told us to come downstairs. There was 20 people around her bed. Um, I was pacing back and forth and the cardiologist came over. They started giving her um, com chest compressions and uh, cardiologist came over to me and he said, you, you can tell them to stop. And immediately I went over and I just said, stop, like stop. I was just so done with them touching her. I was so done with it. And um, so I told them to stop. And uh, I don't know when she left because um, it was so dramatic. I tried to pull her towards me and I said, get all of this shit off of her. And so they were taking all the monitors and taking all the crap off of her. And I said, take that breathing tube out. And the doctor who was on at the time said, oh, oh, oh. she was sort of hesitating, taking the breathing tube out. I said, take the breathing tube out. And she said, oh, there'll be blood. I said, I don't care if there's blood, just take it out. So she took it out. There was a tiny bit of blood. I wiped it away. I said, that was fine, wasn't it, honey? And I picked her up and just held her. And I was finally able to hold her. I hadn't been able to hold her for 17 days. Um, it felt so good just to hold her in my arms. And uh, Harry held her and, and then his mum and his stepdad came and we all just held her for a few hours. And uh, they gave us a big room with a bath. And they said, you can bathe her. So... Uh, we took her in and I was holding her and we bathed her and gave her a, a bath and I picked her up, wrapped her in a towel and I was holding her and I put her down on the couch in her towel and I looked at her and I knew that what I was looking at wasn't Evie. And that's when I was um, okay with them, with them taking her downstairs. Um, yeah. So, you know, for someone who doesn't trust um, the medical system and who, yeah, it was a really traumatic and horrific experience for me, watching them treat my little girl like that. Um, I... I consented to a, uh, a partial autopsy. So the surgeon asked me if they could do that because they were confused. They were confused as to why she passed away. There was never any talk of her, like there might've been one point where the surgeon sat me down and said she might not make it, but then she'd improved after that. And a, the consultant I told you about before, who was an expert, he came up to me afterwards and he said, I have no idea why she passed away. I can't work it out. I never expected it. Nobody ever expected her not to make it. The experts didn't expect it. So 
he asked if he, he said, we will only touch what we've already touched. Mm. We won't touch anything else. And I thought, okay. So they did a partial autopsy and they found that she also had agenesis of the lungs. And what the only, so basically the lungs branch out like a, like a, a tree with several, you know, sacs, um, the, the, you know, big and complex and there's lots of them. Hers were just like one, one. No branching? No, no branching. So where there would be like 12, there was like four or something like that, you know? So, yeah, so she, and I said, well, how could you have diagnosed that? And he said, well, we would have had to have taken a biopsy of her lungs to know that that was the case. And I said, well, are there any circumstances under which you would have done that before you went in and did surgery and kept her on a breathing tube for 17 days? And he said, um, there are circumstances that we would have done that, but she didn't exhibit any of those symptoms. And in a world where that could have been diagnosed earlier, could it have been supported? I don't know. I don't know whether that would have just meant that they didn't do the surgery. Right. Or whether there would have been different things they'd done along the way. But I don't think they would have treated her like they did if they'd known. Uh, but yeah. that's, the, that's the like catch 22, right? Because they wouldn't have taken the biopsy with what was presented. Mm. Right. She Is that what you said? Yeah, she fooled everybody. <laughs> I liked when you said she's her own little universe. Yeah, she I was. Like that image. Yeah. Is that her behind you? Yeah, that's her. Hmm. She was my happy baby. You see. <laughs> her little smile. Yeah. Oh. Okay, Jeez. so how at this point, give me just a quick time frame reference of when Evie passes to when you give birth. 12 days. Holy shit. 12 days? Whoa. Did you, okay, so, I mean, I just can't even, like, begin to. I was in my 39th week when she passed. Okay. So you knew, obviously, that you were entering that, and I imagine that birth was not probably at the forefront of your mind the entire pregnancy, and was it just kind of like, I know I'm going to free birth, and then, like, everything's you know your focus obviously is completely on your daughter and like what happens next what, what is this 12 days like at, into your birth I mean I just wow what 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 crazy terrain to be mm. in yeah so I I I I was 39 weeks sitting in the ICU and all the nurses you can imagine ICU nurses just saying where are you giving birth? Yeah. Where are you giving birth? And I was like, uh, over there in the woods. <laughs> yeah, you could see the woods not there, here. Yeah, no, no, in the woods. One of them actually said they'd call a code blue on me if I went into labour. Like, wow. anyway, yeah. Um, they tried to get me an appointment at a local birth centre. And yeah. Uh, yeah, I, yeah, that that went badly. Basically, I sat down. Uh, I, I thought I'd, I'd, they got me the referral to the birth centre, so I thought I'd better go, you know. And so I walked in and um, they'd obviously got my notes from Eve and I sat down and 
I'm a 39-week pregnant woman with a, my daughter in the ICU. And the first thing this midwife says to me is, if you go to 41 weeks, you will give birth in the hospital. Ew. Jeez. That it's, was the first thing that came out of her mouth. It's insane. Like, who are these people? I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea. Anyway, they didn't accept me because I hadn't done the the um, everything <laughs> or, uh, the diabetes test, the gestational so, diabetes test. So I wasn't allowed to give birth there. Thank God. So I was looking at Airbnbs. Yeah, exactly. This yeah. might be a stupid question, but was there like how much of of your mind was consumed by like, is this going to happen again? Like, did that, was that on your mind at all? That, that, not to say that that's even like a rational thought necessarily, but. I had an ultrasound after Evie was diagnosed with, because yeah. I hadn't had an ultrasound up until that point. And um, I did have an ultrasound, but the thing is the, right. the cardiologist told me that there's only a 20% chance it's going to get picked up anyway. Exactly. Um but I wasn't worried. My instincts were telling me that this was a complete, this was a different story. Okay. Um, but I did have that ultrasound at 33 weeks with Freya. Yeah. And you were that looking was. for an Airbnb near the hospital because you were juggling the reality of not knowing what the heck was happening with Evie slash birth is impending. In, is a ticking time bomb any day. That is a lot to juggle. Yeah. So wow. Airbnb was my. And yeah, of course. I think I, I think I yelled at a couple of nurses because they kept asking me about my birth and I kept saying, I don't give a fuck. The birth is not an issue. My baby girl is the issue, of course. you know? Um, so we, after three days, we had a funeral and cremated her. And that day we went home, we drove down from Perth and I had her, and even though she was in ashes, I, it would just felt so good to be bringing her home and to be going home with her because that's all I'd wanted for 17 days. And um, I, knew I, I knew I wanted a free birth, but I also maybe I wanted to have a birth photographer there. And I messaged the birth photographer and told her I was on my way home, that we'd just had Evie's funeral um, and that I was on my way home and was likely to give birth you know, soon. And she sent me this giant text, basically all about signing some sort of waiver um, and like risk and all this sort of stuff. And I was like, look, the fact that you would send me that today means I can't have you in my birth space. I'm really sorry, but, you know, see you later. Um, like, could anyone just think about you for a while? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So that 12 days, you know, you asked about that 12 days, I was in shock. So I, I wasn't able to process a lot of grief. What would happen was I would, the grief would hit me when I'd sit down to eat. So I was in shock for the, the rest of the time. And then we'd sit down to have a meal and I'd be like, where's Evie? Oh, totally. And so I'd burst into tears every single meal time and then go back into shock. So that's what that 12 days was. My sister came, she flew in from interstate and she was with me the whole time. 
and you know we did a bit of nesting and we did a little maternity shoot and we tried to focus on Freya um, and you know I'd obviously done a lot of research about stress during pregnancy because I was worried about Freya as well I mean Freya's in her third trimester she's feeling and seeing and hearing all of this and the conclusion I came to is that obviously you can't um, avoid stress during pregnancy but you can actively bring your system down to a point of calm and that will will be enough it's like the good enough mother you can't stop yourself occasionally losing your shit just calm down and apologize you know rules <laughs> um, for life yeah <laughs> so i i tried to focus on yeah freya for that time so yeah my sister was with me and you know she was there for a couple of weeks it was sort of waiting for me to give birth and waiting and waiting and then I ended up going into labor the night before she was due to leave um, <laughs> and I think that that's just how it was meant to be my sister has a lot of fearful anxious energy she had an emergency cesarean herself she doesn't trust birth and so you know I don't think I could have had her in the house while I gave birth so the day before she left I had some uh, light surges in the morning um, and so we went to the shops and we got our little you know supplies for the for the labor and you know I was breathing through the surges we came home we had lunch and they stopped and I was like okay cool so I had a normal afternoon ate dinner um, Zoe was going to the airport in the morning and um, woke up at about one o'clock in the morning with strong contractions like I was like started verbalizing through them couldn't go back to sleep I stayed in bed for until about 3 a.m just like laboring in bed and then at about 3 a.m I'm like oh got up ran the bath and then started laboring in the bath um, and you know how he was pouring water on me and he lit some candles and I was just in the bath all morning my sister was like timing the contractions on a little sheet and um, apparently they were like up to one minute apart at that point like it was a, a hard and fast labor like it came on from that one o'clock in the morning it was like all systems go and I'm like in the bath you know in full labor going Zoe, just let Harry drop you at the bus station. Like, <laughs> she's, right. like, yeah, she's like, I'm worried about you. I could just get a cab. I'm like, no, no, get, let Harry do it. She's like, are you sure you want to be left alone? And I'm like, anyway, we're having this argument. I'm like, I'm fine. Like, just just go. Um, so that they left to, to, to drop her off. And I got out of the bath and I laid a little bit in the lounge room. And then um, I went into the bedroom and I was laboring on the bed. Harry filled up the pool and um, I organized for the midwife that had been at Evie's birth to be on the phone for Harry, not for me. You know, um, it was a big leap for, for you know, him to um, support me in a free birth, especially what, after what had happened with Eve. So I thought it would make him feel safer to have her on the phone. So she was on speakerphone for the last couple of hours of the birth, I think. So um, 
he's filling up the pool, I'm laboring on the bed. <laughs> and it got to the point I was on all fours, sort of, you know, um, I'd have a big contraction, my whole body, you know, moved, you know, vibrated, and then I'd like lay down on the pillow and just fall asleep in between contractions. <laughs> so I was doing that for a while. He um, set up the pool, which a local midwife had dropped off kindly. Um, I got into the pool and it was so intense. Like it was completely different to Evie's birth. It was like a freight train, you know, and I was just, I couldn't, I felt like I couldn't go through it. You know, I just, I, I had no idea how I was going to do this. <laughs> and I felt down and there was no change. I was just like, there is nothing there. There's no baby there. I just can't believe this. Um, and then finally my waters broke while I was in the pool and it was like the best feeling in the entire world. I was just like, was such a relief and then they just came on just as strong <laughs> it was like there was the tidiest little break from it um and then yeah finally she was born and it wasn't long after I thought oh I think it was transition where I was like I can't do this anymore but it wasn't long after that she was born probably about 40 minutes later and um she was born into the water and about three days before the birth, I was like in between sleep and awakeness. And I just had this thought, suck her face when she comes, when she's born, like, you know? And so she was born into the water. I pulled her up and I immediately kind of went like that. Um, and she was a little, still a little bit gurgly after that, but she was fine. And I just went like this and then I, put her to my chest and she actually did the little, you know, finding of the breast and then she latched on and I, I looked up at Harry with this big smile on my face and I said, that's what a latch feels like. Like it was amazing. And she was the best breastfeeder. Like <laughs> she's, she just went for it and I was, and it healed everything. Um, that had happened with Evie and it was wonderful and um, you know she was a big baby she was like 4.2 kilos and um, yeah I didn't tear or anything like that I had a tiny little graze and um, yeah it was perfect I think I tried to I wanted to birth the placenta immediately because I was so over it I was like that was so effing intense I just want it to be over and so I think after about I don't know, I have, time is weird in that space. I have no idea how long it was, but it would, had probably only been about 15 minutes. I tried to birth the placenta and it just wasn't coming out. And so about half an hour after that, I stood up, squatted in it, and it slipped right out. Um, and we had an amazing three hours together. And then um, we called my parents and we let them know. and. Uh, I, my plan was to go to the hospital after I gave birth. Now, who I am now wouldn't do that. But where I was at that time, it felt necessary for the people around me mm. because of what we'd been through with Eve. So and to go to the hospital to get 
her heart looked at or yeah to get to get a referral to get her heart looked at to get the paperwork and to get a the pediatrician to check her which they don't really like do anything wasn't, wasn't necessary for me at all I had a 4.2 kilo pink breastfeeding baby um there was no need for me to do that but that's what it was and so you felt other people in your life really wanted a medical provider to say this baby is healthy and fine yeah okay yeah and as I said sitting here now I wouldn't do it so I thought I would go in um so so we called my parents yeah 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 yep everything's great Harry called his mum and we hadn't told her that we were planning a free birth. Harry didn't think and just told her that we were at home and no, there was no midwife. And she said something nasty and hung up on him. Three hours after you gave birth? Yeah. Wow. So then I said, okay, let's go to the hospital. So we went. Uh, so he called an ambulance and uh, everything changed. The energy changed. Why do you call an ambulance? I can't remember. It's so dramatic. I know. No, no. What had happened? No, no, no. What happened was we called the the hospital where I wanted to go, which was half an hour away. It wasn't the local hospital, and we said, "Oops, we gave birth." All right, and um, they said, "Oh, oh, uh, we're not sure what to do about that. Let us call you back," and they called us back, and they said we're sending an ambulance that's what happened yeah <clears throat> and they said we're going to bring you up here and I um, thought I was going to that hospital because it's sort of the preferred hospital instead they took me to the local one um, so the ambulance pulls up at the local hospital and I'm like aren't we going to Bustleton and they're like oh no they sent you here and I'm like okay and this is this tiny hospital which um, yeah anyway I thought I'd I, I thought I'd be at Russellton for two hours and come home. Instead, they sent me to the local one who frankly don't know what they're doing. And because this was his excuse, because she had some muck in her hair and they weren't able to monitor her during labour and because of what happened to her sister, they wanted to send her to Bunbury, the big hospital, for you know a proper checkup and blah, 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 follow-up, right? Now, at this point, I should have said F you, but... I was so vulnerable and this is uh, this is what is I think the the haze of acquiescence you know I think I heard an author describe it as that and that's what it is it's like this haze you get into where you're like yes okay okay like there's no autonomy left you know when you get in these situations and that's why we you know we want to avoid these situations um so they sent me up to the big hospital and I hadn't cut the cord when I got to the hospital. And so I rock up at the hospital with my baby and my placenta in a... <laughs> <laughs> uh, and they're like, can we cut the cord? This is like four hours later. And I'm like, yeah, okay, cut the cord. Um, so they sent me up to the big hospital and 
I was just like, why am I here? And that's what all the midwives were saying as well. Like, I think I had two midwives say that to me that night. Like, why are you here? And then we were waiting for the pediatrician to come in the morning. And so in the morning, it got to about 9am. I pressed the buzzer because I just wanted to go home and I wanted to know where this doctor was. And Harry walked in and I burst into tears and I said, I've been pressing the buzzer to get this doctor to come because I just need to go home. And he's like, hang on. And he goes out and he gets a midwife. The midwife comes in and she looks at me and she's like, honey, your baby's perfect. You're you're perfect. I don't know why you're here. I'm going to go get the doctor so that you can go home because that's obviously where you feel the most safe. And I was like, thank you. So this doctor comes in, checks out Freya and goes, oh, what a healthy looking baby. Don't often see them looking so healthy. And, you know, gives me a referral for a cardiologist to do the, you know, the test in a couple of weeks and then sends us home. And I'll never forget the sun on my face walking out of that hospital and how it felt. And, you know, I wonder about those effects on Freya of that energy happening, you know, from the four hour mark to the next morning. Um, but things happen the way they happen. And obviously, you know, I'm, I'm planning on getting pregnant again this year and obviously that won't be happening. But, yeah, I, I think I did the best I could. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Mm. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't... It wasn't know, we we yeah. moved the needle at the pace we moved the needle, you know? Mm. You moved it. You are, <laughs> you know, and... I hear you though. I mean, I understand. Yeah. Yeah. And mm. so how old is Freya now? She was three in October yeah. and she is an absolute whirlwind. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Was that crazy having her become older than what Evie was? Yeah, it was significant. Yeah, it's so. funny that they're exactly six months apart to the day wow. and they were born exactly 30 minutes apart on the clock. So it was like 8, 12 and 8, 42. Mm. It's like the little half moon, mm. you know. Um, yeah. It's made, I think that the grief has changed since Freya turned two and a half it's become a little bit more intense, mm-hmm. I think. Um, it's like I was shielded from it a little bit up until that point. And now I think about Eve and, you know, what I'm missing from not having her here more because uh, it was a special connection. Yeah. yeah. She was uh, very special. Is there a, a place in your house where you still like feel her or talk to her? Uh, she's gone. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I felt that quite early on. Huh. Yeah, I don't. Um, one of my friends, um, 
his brother her brother is a um, Buddhist scholar and he says that when a child dies of a um, congenital defect the soul has a choice to either come back to earth sometimes within the same family or just move on to the higher realms and just be gone and I feel like that's what she chose I don't you know I I do have access and intuition and my that when I feel into it she's just gone <laughs> she's gone what'd you, you do know? with her ashes I've still got them yeah I can't let go of them <laughs> you don't have to no I won't be <laughs> you know I might release them just before I die or something like that but um they're they're with me yeah I had a portrait painted of her yeah that's in my bedroom and uh I've got a little diary that I write in. I write her letters sometimes on her birthday and sometimes when I'm just grieving. And yeah. Um, Have you found other mothers that, not that anyone's walked this path, but that have, have you found like refuge in other mothers who've experienced this kind of grief? I had an opportunity to go to like a heart kids um, event where there were other parents there who'd lost children to, to congenital heart defects and I couldn't go. This was like late last year. I couldn't, I'm not ready yet. Yeah, that will happen though. Yeah. And in, in any other like social arena, have you, I just, I'm just imagining how, what a unique experience it is as a mother and and grief in general you know can just be so isolating and so you know like the world just keeps happening while you're inside out you know and for, mm. so, for so long and it's not like it goes away and yeah I just I, I would imagine that like the 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 hug and the tears of another mother who has lost their child would be like yeah just such a like irreplaceable like specific kind of yeah that happened actually like not long after all this happened I went came back to Adelaide to go to a music festival called Warm Adelaide and one of my managers that I'd worked with her she'd lost her daughter to suicide and um, I saw her at the festival and I and she'd known what had happened to me because she'd been working with my sister and I ran up to her and I hugged her and I just broke down <laughs> and I just sobbed into her chest and it was different you're absolutely right it was a there's a knowing there yeah well, and like, I, 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 I will seek out seek that out because it is you, you you tell people and you don't even go into detail but you tell people and they there's a there's an immediate like I can't imagine that and that's almost more isolating because right totally <laughs> like no actually imagine it so that you can feel some mm. of this yeah totally nobody wants to touch it but we're very very unskillful group of people <laughs> you know I mean there's just not a lot of skills in in this arena no we're we're 
a, a grief averse grief yeah. suppression and a, a death phobic culture Seriously. which which i think causes a lot of issues <laughs> you know yeah oh sweet little girl navy girl i really appreciate you sharing this and a lot of women and a lot of mothers have reached out to me and asked me for more stories of loss and for more voices from mothers who have experienced loss. Um, yeah, and it's, I'm just, I'm really grateful that I get to share your story and, and I know the energetic kinship that will be found within within the story mm, thank you yeah so i'm i'm hoping to do your rbk school okay. and I'm, yeah i see myself running uh prenatal education groups mm -hmm. so yeah i see that happening in my future it's not happening right now but that's definitely coming up so love to have you yeah I, I think that would be wonderful so yeah I'd love people to find me on Instagram especially mothers other mothers who've been through similar um so yeah what, what why don't you say your handle so when um, Simone awakened birth you're like, I actually know what it is <laughs> I don't go I try not to go on socials because every time I get PMT I say something controversial and it makes people upset so. oh you'll fit into RBK great <laughs> Well, I'll make sure it's in the show notes and obviously I'll tag you on Instagram and stuff. So Great. women will be able to find you. That would be wonderful. Thank Ooh. you. All right. Well, thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. I really, I'm very excited <sighs> to hear this story and hold this story and yeah, would love to see you in, in RBK and in IRL someday. Definitely. Yeah. Right. Thank, thank you so much. Bye. And that's it for today, my sisters. Check out everything we do, including one-on-one -on -one and group coaching, learn about our private membership, in-person retreats, and more on freebirthsociety.com. Our online courses are on freebirthsocietycourses.com, including our flagship course, The Complete Guide to Free Birth. Don't miss the Radical Birthkeeper School if you're ready to become the authentic midwife that women are searching for. Together we rise. And the revolution starts inside each of us. I'll leave you with our Free Birth Society theme song, Wild Woman by Aruba Red.
this sacred portal will be honoured. Eons upon light beams of survival withstanding the eradication of our power by design. I will not allow the separation of our young to be forced upon me. My sisters will no longer birth in captivity. The picket line redefined from burning our wild women to paralysing us and drugging our babes. Strapped down in a clinical white bed, drying up the milk from our breasts, keep your needles. My family will never again be doomed to chase those dragons or your poison. We reject your fear. We choose love. Everything with intention. Death, ascension. I will fly and bring her back from the start.